Hey, good morning. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining me for this uh, live webinar uh, to sort of uh, answer some questions about uh, the contributions you made to our um, disparities in thoracic surgery, most specifically lung cancer and lung screening disparities uh, for CTSNET. Um, I uh, look forward to, this is very informal. I'm gonna start though by at least introducing all of you uh, and then ask you some questions and, but feel free to ask you know, some questions yourself to, to other members of our panelists because you all um, are interested in the same topic and uh, just can use this as a forum just to share some ideas as well. Uh, and I, I, I'm in the process of trying to get our lung screening program going here at, uh, or at least ramp it up here at Intermountain Healthcare, where I am now. And uh, I'm definitely encountering some things that I want to pick your brains about. So, um, so I'm Virginia Lytle, uh, Chief of Thoracic at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined by um, the following uh, esteemed colleagues here. Uh, so Dr. Ryan Hassan from Dartmouth Medical School, uh, Dartmouth um, Hitchcock. And Sherry, Dr. Sherry Erkman, who's at Temple University, thoracic surgery. Dr. Gita Modi at the University of North Carolina. Dr. Kay Suzuki at Boston Medical Center, affiliated with Boston University. And medical student Azante Griffith at the University of Cincinnati, who has uh, engaged in research with Dr. Rob Van Haren, another thoracic surgeon at the University of Cincinnati. So thank you all for joining. I really enjoyed watching your, your videos and I appreciate you taking the time to put them together. Uh, all of you also have uh, contributed to this, this uh, area of interest um, in lung cancer uh, management. Uh, the whole idea about disparities has come up with the pandemic as you all know. And uh, it really, you know, hopefully once the pandemic quiets down and maybe we're on that path finally, um, then we can focus on what's really important uh, for in, with regards to disparities and other aspects of our, our clinical area. So um, I thought I would just start by asking some questions. Um, and I know some of you uh, may have to jump off a little bit. Uh, so I'll start with you, Dr. Suzuki. Um, so uh, first of all, do you wanna just say a little bit about how you got interested in this whole topic? Sure, uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, so I got interested because we're at Boston Medical Center, which is you know, a major safety net hospital center in the area. And so healthcare disparity is something we see on a daily basis uh, in any, anything we do. Um, so we just looked at it in lung cancer and lung cancer screening and sure enough, um, um, you know, it exists, right? So uh, we've looked at it um, in a very robust and detailed um, fashion. And uh, it's, I think it's a very powerful and important data to, to share with, uh, with the rest of the country. Um, but yes, that's how I got interested in the topic. Okay, great. And um, since you and I were partners until recently, uh, I do know that one of your research interests include uh, adopting the screening guidelines for the vulnerable patient population in order to optimize the yield and minimize unnecessary uh, screening CT scans. I know you were working on to see if, uh, you know, maybe we should consider something like COPD, uh, et cetera, as a, as a risk factor so that we're not doing unnecessary uh, screens. 
Um, what are some of the modifiers you have identified aside from that in your early work? Yeah, so I think I think first first I guess before we get to that, because they lowered the criteria, I think it's great that we're going to catch a wider population. But then I think the issue we may encounter is that the the screen the capture rate of the lung cancer is going to be even lower, right? So it's it's one to two percent now for everyone with the with the older guidelines. I think it's going to be lower. And so that's why I'm, I'm doing some of the work to identify additional risk factors uh, that can potentially be thrown into that criteria. So some of the things we identified is uh, um, COPD, uh, emphysema, that makes sense. I think it's just a surrogate marker for heavier smoking, uh, perhaps. Uh, and then the other thing that came out was family history of lung cancer. Uh, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, black race is something that has been shown as a risk factor in our database, which has 30, 40 percent uh, black race. Uh, race was not a factor uh, in our database. Uh, so the two biggest factors in our database is COPD and family history of lung cancer, which um, I think they're, they're in the, uh, what is it, NCCN uh, group two criteria. Uh, so I guess it makes an argument to push those harder to be included in the potentially in, in, uh, in the criteria as additional risk factors. Great, thank you. Right, and I have a question for you, Ms. Griffith. Um, so you and your team, um, uh, you summarized disparities in lung care, cancer diagnosis and treatment and outcomes in your video, and you proposed a couple of models to increase access to lung cancer screening. So for example, community engagement, and then the a, do you call it ACURE model, A-C-C-U-R-E, ACURE model? Uh, given your expertise, which model would be most practical to apply and why? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the ACURE model intervention trial definitely showed that it could reduce disparities in lung cancer treatment. Um, and so they did that through a real-time registry system that had um, a nurse navigator for patients that was accessible they had increased health equity training for their staff, and they also did quality improvement through clinical feedback. Um, but the problem with this is that it focused mostly on lung cancer treatment. And so if we want to really um, impact the source of the disparities, we need to focus on community engagement as well. Um, so the ACURE model is definitely um, easier to implement in a clinical setting, but the community engagement model takes a little bit more work, but it can help increase um, just in general access to lung cancer screening, um, lung cancer awareness in these populations, and that can kind of help treat the source of disparities instead. Um, so I really think that a combination of the two is um, the most beneficial. Um, but this past summer, we actually did a prospective mixed method study where we tried to identify um, different barriers to care in lung cancer patients and the impact of their outcomes. And we found that um, specifically in patients with a new lung cancer diagnosis, they had a lot of issues with ineffective communication from their providers. And so I think the real goal is to use um, information that we get from studies like that to help develop more targeted interventions in these populations and hopefully help outcomes there. So we don't just focus on the patients that get to treatment, but also the ones that don't even make it to treatment instead. Yeah, great, thanks. Yeah, we did find that in, in, in Boston, um, in our patient population and the, the program, lung cancer screening program at Boston Medical is led by um, Katie Styling, who was also part of the, the video for this series um, with, with Kay. And um, she, I guess, wasn't able to make the webinar here, but um, involvement of like leaders in the community 
in order to help bridge the gap between, so not necessarily just the physician leaders, not, not like the primary care doctors. I mean, that's important, obviously, too. We got to get that, that population engaged, but um, to get more people involved in screening, but also like church leaders and just like those who uh, members of the, of the vulnerable populations respect um, and connecting with them to engage uh, their constituents, for lack of a better word, to um, be concerned about or interested in screening because there is a lot of, you know, skepticism, uh, fear, um, all sorts of things about and reluctance to get screened. So really just reaching out to people you don't normally think about like that to, to, to help them um, engage. You know, I, I don't think we see these challenges as much with like mammography and colonoscopy, but I suspect we probably do. Um, but we still have, since lung screening hasn't been around as long, um, there's a lot of work to do in that, in that area. So, and uh, does anyone, do you got anyone, uh, any other members of the uh, panel here have some comments on that particular topic about community engagement? Because it is a really important one. I'd love to know what you guys do. Maybe start with you, um, Dr. Hassan. Yeah, so I, I th that's a, a very important point. I mean, out here in our rural population, you have to involve the community. Um, I think, you know, there's those that are rural that live close to our academic center here. We're the only academic center in New Hampshire. And then in Vermont, there's just UVM. So it's, it's the two of us. And, um, you know, there's patients that live close, but they also live close to Dartmouth College. They're mostly professors. You know, it's a different demographic than those that live remote, um, you know, more than 30, 40, 50 miles away and don't have accredited lung cancer screening centers near them or don't have access to providers and are more dependent on community providers. I think that, you know, you mentioned a great point that we have to engage the primary care physicians and providers, but we also have to engage those in the community, like at the church facilities, as you mentioned, or places of worship, at the town halls, at the community groups, you know, those that actually know the community and know that, hey, 80% of the people here are actually on Facebook, you know, so if you want to recruit people to your focus groups, go ahead and go on Facebook. I mean, we found that extremely helpful and we're actually surprised by that, but we recruited the most people to our focus groups through Facebook um, or in just knowing which avenues they you know, use the most. So for example, in some towns at the town hall, every Friday, every fourth Friday of the month, you know, they have a special event. So that'd be a great time for you to go and canvas or, you know, have screenings or, or that type of thing. So I think that's uh, vitally important for you to really getting in there and reaching everyone. I think that you will get those that already go to academic centers, but getting those that go to the small community facilities and taking some of the burden off the primary care providers to have to do everything um, and using the full, leveraging the knowledge that the folks have that actually know this population to you know, help reach um, these prospective patients. I think it's, it can be very, very helpful. And there's many ways you can do that. You know, focus groups, surveys, canvassing, social media, you know, the world's your oyster, you know, in terms of the options, it's just knowing which implementations to do in which populations that the community um, assistance can be vitally important. And, and Dr. Modi, you have a sort of a similar patient population, but down south. Can yes. you just elaborate a little bit on that? Absolutely. I, I couldn't be in more agreement with Asnet and Ryan. Um, North Carolina has one of the largest rural populations um, in the country. And we see a, 
a very diverse uh, patient group. We've done some formal qualitative research to understand the barriers uh, to early stage lung cancer care in our patient set. And one of the most important concepts is rapport with the provider, whether that's a primary care provider in the community or the surgeon that they're seeing, patients will be their own advocate, but also need advocates. And they may be um, encouraged to seek treatment if they know they can interact with their surgeon, um, have their quality of life concerns addressed and other really important um, barriers to proceeding with surgery um, or whatever indicated therapy. So I'm in agreement with that. And where um, surgeons may be able to contribute is to truly engage on these initiatives um, to strengthen the rapport with the community level providers in the patient population themselves. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Erkman, you you are practicing in the urban setting and, and maybe, yeah, can you just elaborate, expand on my um, comments about the Boston population and, and how to address that? Yes, I think it's um, the, the common thread among all of us is getting credible messengers out in the community to increase awareness about lung cancer screening. So the first step has been awareness. And um, what we've used that's novel is a system that we call block captains. So being in an urban setting, there are block captains who are in charge of everything from complaints about uh, sanitation and trash removal to parks to uh, health messages. And so we're using these uh, integrated systems that already exist to pass along the message of lung cancer screening. Something that's unique and different from what you were talking about with breast cancer or colon cancer is that lung cancer has this stigma that somehow there's to blame, uh, there's blame to place because of smoking or some behavior that links it cancer to uh, what you've done in your past. And so I think that that message resonates really, really heavily in our urban population. And the only way that we could understand that is to do exactly what everybody else on this uh, meeting has done is a needs assessment. What are the specific needs in your population? It can't be the same for everybody. There can't be a general approach. It really has to be your population specifically. What do they need? What are the barriers? Is it language? Is it transportation? And we found it was convenience that people really can't pull away from their job or their work, that they really liked having everything consolidated into a single visit where we can get the screening and the reporting and the next steps in play. Uh, but like I said, for other people, it may be language or it may be integration and connection with a multidisciplinary team. But nevertheless, we in our urban population found that stigma was actually a huge barrier. So we focused our education to that concept. And then when we had a critical mass, we're able to give population specific data back to our community to say, okay, well, NLST says this, but in our population, this is, we found 3% of lung cancer in our population. So these are your neighbors. This is what we're doing. And I, again, I think that has helped us gain momentum. Great, thanks. 
Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great point on the stigma because I think that's also partly why lung cancer screening is not as successful as breast cancer or colon cancer because, you know, nobody looks at women or men that come for breast cancer screening and says, hey, you know, you did this and this, and that's why you have breast cancer. And most women, you know, there's a, a or I should say a, a big proportion of women actually go to their providers and say, Hey, I need a mammogram. It's time, you know, and work on that. And I think the same thing with colorectal cancer. I mean, getting a colonoscopy is pretty invasive. No one wants to do the prep, but they know for the most part, they have 70% participation of eligible participants. So a lot of people realize that, yes, this may not be something that I want to do, but I need to do it. And if a cancer is found though, they're not necessarily criticized for like, Ooh, that Western diet, you know, really gave you colon cancer or, or that type of thing. Whereas, you know, when someone's diagnosed with lung cancer, oftentimes, you know, patients tell me all the time, the first question they get is, did you smoke? How long did you smoke? You know, and that's, it's just not right. And so I think, you know, that's a huge barrier that we have to overcome with our patients is to first acknowledge, you know, that, okay, it is what it is. If you have a cancer, and even if you have smoked for 60 years, we're here now, that's something that we'll work on having you try to quit, but we got to treat this cancer and we have to move forward because I think the patient guilt that's also associated with that, you know, so many patients are like, I brought this on myself, you know, and saying like, we're not even going to think about that. You know, we have different things and moving past that, acknowledging that, but, you know, I think it's, it is just a huge and sometimes insurmountable barrier to try to overcome. And I think primary care providers do the best job that they can, but sometimes they can express some bias. They definitely get it from their family members, their friends. And so we need to be the, you know, force reinforcing force that says, Hey, we don't care. You're just here now. Let's get screened. Let's figure out what's going on. And hopefully if you do have a cancer, catch this early so that we can cure it and, you know, get you back on the right track. So I think that's a great point that you brought up about the stigma because it's real. And it's something that separates us from all, almost all other screening um, modalities. And that really, you know, makes it more difficult despite all the other challenges we face of it being a new modality, you know, provider concerns, et cetera. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. It's, uh, I see, I've seen that exists here in Utah too. We don't have very high rates of smoking or lung cancer, but uh, there's definitely a stigma. In fact, the Utah, I guess the CMS in Utah doesn't even cover screening CTs. So that's, that needs to be changed, obviously. So, um, but we're, we're, you know, trying to make, uh, trying to evolve into a more uh, 21st century uh, program here. So um, some of the other challenges, uh, you know, in, in trying to extend, I guess we're really going to focus on screening here because this is a real uh, important aspect of, of trying to improve lung cancer outcomes, right? Immunotherapy and screening, in my opinion, are like, what's going to do it right now? Um, so, and to try to get above the, I think the highest screening rate in the country, I believe is in Massachusetts at like 18%. And you guys can correct me if that's not right, but that's what I have read. And 18% uh, is pretty low. So uh, how, can we, how can we increase that besides all the things that you guys have talked about? But another one, one of the other challenges that, that we have is, um, in, again, in the vulnerable populations is lack of, um, access to even, you know, smartphone technology. Uh, so limitations on, on the ability to uh, reach out to um, subjects with, uh, by telehealth, right? 
Um, can you guys comment and maybe we'll start, um, uh, Ms. Ms. Griffith, do you have any comments on, on that, on how to improve the access uh, for telehealth? And if you don't, that's okay. I can move on to someone else. <laughs> yeah, so um, I actually did some research with this last year, and I think a big aspect is transportation. And um, one thing that we looked at is the fact that a lot of our patients went and used the bus system. And so, of course, you can't really access like them through maybe a computer or through a phone, but if you can start getting ads and maybe like the transportation models that they do use. So with buses or with other things that they do use, I think that way you can kind of help increase the amount of awareness with screening. Um, I think also just in general, trying to bring screening to them and making sure that, you know, if someone lives in a food desert, or lives in an area where they don't have resources, you should also bring healthcare there because that's going to be a really big issue with them. If they're not getting regular resources, they're probably not looking for their healthcare or looking to get screened for lung cancer. So I think in general, just thinking holistically and being able to bring resources to them would be really beneficial. Uh, yeah, Dr. Modi, it looks like you want yeah. to Yeah, oh yes, I agree completely. And in fact, some of the solutions might lie in taking a step back. Um, so we have looked at the role of health information technology to augment delivery of lung cancer care. Starting with advanced lung cancer patients, we saw that almost 40% of participants in a national trial on using um, uh, web-based surveys for tracking symptoms during chemotherapy actually elected to take their survey, not on the web, um, but rather electronically through a digital voice recording. So like a robocaller that asks you to schedule your uh, cable company visit, whatever that is. And, and we're now going to try that in um, uh, surgical lung cancer patients because that might be a way to allow people to access a technology that they're comfortable with and familiar with. So if they can communicate with their provider using some automated system that can help them keep track of what's going on with them in a way that they're comfortable and feel engaged, we may be able to improve um, our interactions with those communities. Um, another really important point that you all hit upon is what could be the role of surgeons in reducing these disparities. And I think participating actively in your hospitals or your cancer center's lung cancer screening program is really important because no pulmonary doctor or radiology person wants to be responsible for interpreting all those scans and then not knowing where we're going to send them. So we have a multidisciplinary team with general pulmonary, interventional pulmonary, thoracic surgery, and radiology um, that participates in, as well as an epidemiologist that participates in our lung cancer screening program. And I think those components together strengthen it and can make the service as robust as possible and therefore more accessible to those community level partners and the um, patients with disadvantaged uh, situations. Great, thanks. Uh, Dr. Erkman, do you uh, want to comment? Yeah, I wanted to, um, it bring up the, the idea of infrastructure. So we know that we need to have multidisciplinary programs and ours is very uh, uh, surgeon heavy and definitely hands-on, as you heard, single visit. But one of the downsides of having a, a very uh, heavily resourced program is that it decreases the access. And so I'm actually interested in what people think about a centralized program that can be very easily curated and, and watched over and make sure that the harms of false positives and unnecessary procedures are limited. But then on the other hand, uh, in transitioning to a more decentralized program that can increase access. So that's where we are now. We're very happy with our results 
and our experience, but we realize that our proportion of capture is very small. And so we're trying to find a way to decentralize, but still keep control of those quality metrics. So I'm interested in what, what people have to say. Well, so can you just elaborate a little bit about, I guess I don't understand exactly decentralizing it. So is that like engaging the community pulmonologists or something? Perhaps making uh, screening accessible at multiple different radiology sites, Ah, mm -hmm. but then that decreases your control over that or having many people do shared decision-making, many people navigate patients, uh, but then you you lose the control of um, making sure that everything is done the way that you want it to be done. So that's one of our challenges is finding how can we disseminate it and increase the number of screening facilities, but still adhere to strict quality measures. Right, right. Um... Yeah, so that's that's like the opposite of how I'm trying to move here. You know, so I'm I'm working at a 24 hospital system. So we're just trying to standardize across the system. But I, I can appreciate that when you're one main center, but you want to get, you know, broaden your catchment area, so 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 to speak, how do you engage those who aren't a part of your system? So that is a very important question, probably more relevant to to most uh, members of the medical community and the most, you know, those who lead, who lead the lung nodule, lung screening uh, programs. So uh, having centralized program, but also the decentralization. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hassan, do you have a comment about that? Yeah. I was going to say one thing that we've tried here is, um, you know, uh, and I was on a panel about this a couple months ago where, you know, we emphasized Ada's point about the surgeons being actively involved in the lung cancer screening program, you know, and that being vital. I think that, um, you know, what to do with these findings and what to do with lung findings in general, you know, the unexpected lung nodule that comes up on a cardiac MRI or, you know, the unexpected lung nodule that they got on a shoulder x-ray for, you know, a torn ligament, that type of thing. So here at Dartmouth, we actually created something called our pulmonary nodule clinic, which I'm one of the co-directors of, along with one of our IP um, physicians. And so it's had a couple of um, key factors in mind in terms of its creation. But the first one was to kind of take care of the lung cancer screening eligible patient from start to finish. So we have nurse practitioners that can help with the shared decision making and the smoking cessation that patients need in order to get referred to get um, the lung cancer screening CT, in which we know that has been a, a barrier for providers to try to do in their appointment, where they're also talking about getting a mammogram, getting a colonoscopy, whatever other medical problems the patient may already have, and whatever new problems they come in the door with. So we actually, they can just put in a referral and we'll take care of it. Um, and we're hoping to develop in the next couple of months to the point where they can just page us. And if the patient's in their clinic and they need sure decision-making, one of our MPs can go ahead and take care of that. And so that kind of addresses the front end of, you know, of, of then making sure that they get the appropriate discussion that they're supposed to have. Um, it does require that the provider identifies them first, but we've been trying to increase our educational efforts with that, especially with the new guidelines that are here, you know, in the new age and smoking requirements too. 
On the back end, um, we are here to help manage the patients that have lung reg three and lung reg four um, scores. So we have our multidisciplinary conference and we actually quickly go through all of those lung reg three and fours with that conference every week to say like, hey, yes, we agree, CT in six months, or hey, actually this nodule looks a little bit concerning, I would get a pet, refer to CT surgery, you know, and go from there. Um, and then we circle back to the providers and say, these are our recommendations. You know, we're happy to do this, um, take care of this and have the patient follow up with us and we'll keep you in the loop. Because I think you, I think the biggest thing that providers are nervous about is us stealing their patients or, you know, we're going to swoop in and take care of this and the evil surgeons are coming to, you know, take your patient and do what needs to be done. But I think it's also, you know, when, you know, many different studies have shown that a lot of providers don't know what to do with the findings. And so a patient will have a lung nodule, they'll get a CT guided lung biopsy, then get referred to us. And then we get a pet and we see they have mediastinal disease and then they need an ABUS. And then, you know, the patient's asking, well, you already know I have cancer. What do you mean I need more workup? You know, and so that type of thing. So it streamlines the workup, but it also makes sure that they get to the right vehicle because I think um, providers also struggle with, do I refer this patient to medical oncology, thoracic surgery, interventional pulmonology, pulmonology, you know, and so it's kind of a one-stop shop, you know, for those lung cancer screening patients. The purpose of the clinic is also to manage all of those incidental and unexpected findings too as well. So anytime a provider sees one of those, they can just refer this to the clinic and we will, you know, help with the workup and help take care of the patient and get them to where they need to go. So I think that that can be helpful, um, for patients because you can, number one, address them when they're right here in the hospital, as opposed to trying to reach them once they've gone home in terms of the early shared decision-making and smoking cessation. I think, you know, from the back end, it gives a catch net for all of these patients so that they're not lost in the system or it's not like, oh, we saw this on a CT six months ago and then they got put in for a biopsy, but then they had to reschedule and now it's six months later and they've had the biopsy and it's cancer. But when you re-image them, it's you know um, more invasive than it was before. It, it streamlines them to get them directly to where they need to go, and so that's kind of what we found in this rural area, especially you know given the barriers that it, it takes to become an accredited center. You know it can be a lot, and I think especially for us, sometimes you have to ask like, do we necessarily need an accredited accredited center here, or or could it help with mobile units where you have something that comes twice or three times a year to meet the needs of the community? Um, you know, the answer may be that is what's sufficient, or it may be like, no, we actually need to get accreditation and get a center out here because the demand is high enough. Um, and so, you know, that is what we're working towards. Um, we have a grant that we're working on now to increase community and local hospital work, and we're applying for one to look at increasing, you know, uptake in lung cancer screening in those remote locations. But I think having a central catch net for those patients to not only get referred to, to get involved in screening, to also follow those patients and make sure they're getting called in the year to say like, hey, it's time for your CT scan, because right now that onus is on the provider, um, their primary care provider, which again, they have a lot on their plate, and then helping to manage those findings if they do have um, uh, clinically significant findings and getting them the treatment they need in an expedited fashion. Yes. Um, yeah, excellent, excellent points. And I think uh, one of the take home messages from your comments and everyone else's comments are, we, we can improve our screening rates by 
uh, and engagement of the primary care doctors by emphasizing that we are unburdening their workload, right? They care about their patients. I mean, they part of their visits include documenting that I discuss colonoscopy, I discuss mammography, whatever, if the patients are eligible for all that stuff. Um, we got to make lung screening a part of that. But, you know, for mammography and colonoscopy, you don't have to go over and you don't have to go through the whole shared decision making stuff and document that. So it is very important to emphasize uh, to the primary care doctors that we are here to help you. And that's the importance of centralizing it. That's not really addressing the decentralization part like Dr. Erkman was talking about, but for the centralized uh, um, systems, that's, that's, um, that's how we can really uh, improve, I think, the, the catchment of these, of these eligible patients. Um, and uh, the, set one, the second point that you were making is the importance of having not just, and all you guys probably know this obviously, is not just a lung screening clinic when we're talking about a centralized program, but having the incidental nodule um, clinic be a part of that. Um, now you can either have you know, two clinics, like a high risk clinic and a low risk clinic or something like that, but somewhere for, you know, the emergency departments and the uh, primary care doctors to send their patients, just one, one number, you know, it's like a hotline. Hey, oh, wow. What am I going to do with this nodule is picked up by on this scan that I got, you know, for my patient with an aneurysm, you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with it. I don't know where to send them. So it, that should be a part of the, the program itself. And the third component is a smoking cessation clinic because that's all part of the shared decision-making. So you just make nodule, screening, smoking cessation all together. And I wanna bring um, your attention. I'm, I, I suspect most of you have seen uh, perhaps the, the STS podcast series on this whole topic that Dr. Erkman, you contributed to that, right? The Betty Tong led. Um, and that was excellent. Did you guys all see that? Yeah, or if you haven't, I. I I suggest you go look at it, but it has um, uh, great contributions through, um, from around the country about implementation of a screening program and uh, some really important points for those who are uh, trying to get this going in their, in their hospital system. Um, so the, your, com your comments also lead me to the question I have for all of you, and I'd like to just go one by one about how, what is the ideal tracking system that you should um, establish for these patients? So you can't do a homegrown, you know, Excel spreadsheet of patients and then expect some coordinator to remember, you know, to call that patient in six months for their, send a postcard for that patient in six months for their next CAT scan. Because, uh, you know, coordinators leave, right? There's turnover and then people fall through the cracks and then there's medical legal consequences. And that was pointed out in one of the, the um, podcast uh, videos actually from the SDS series. Um, so what, what kind of tracking systems are you guys all using? Maybe I'll start with you. Um, okay, Dr. Suzuki. Um, I don't know that we have a good, I, I, I think we heavily rely on the navigators for that. So yes, as you mentioned, if, if a navigator leaves, I don't actually know what, what happens. Um, so I don't, I don't, I guess I don't really have a good answer for that. 
you're so talking about the, the screening surveillance, yes? Like yeah, the, the patient um, uh, surveillance, the tracking system, because there's some expensive systems out there, and we're actually yeah. demoing a bunch of them. Medtronic makes one, a GPS thing. Yeah. Uh, there's a company named Eon. It's led by an IP doc, and it uh, looks very flashy, but is it really worth the money? I talked to a friend of mine at Kaiser, and I think they did a homegrown thing at Kaiser. Um so yeah, it doesn't sound like it's very. Yeah, I don't. I don't know many systems that I know. Dr. Styling um, maintains her database because she presents the the data every three months. But I right. think we just rely on that. Yeah, and that's and that's, so, that's not good at all, actually. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here we've uh, we've kind of transitioned to using Epic. So you know, at, at DHMC we have something called DH. Um, like our version of Epic. And so just like our thoracic surgery patients, you know, those that are under surveillance and have had their resections, they get, you know, you, they can, you can put in something called a recall, which will, you know, every month our schedulers can run the recall list of like, who's due this month. And then it will give you a running list of who's set for their one year CT or whatever, you know, imaging modality they're supposed to get at that set time. I think that's proven the easiest because anybody can say, let me get the recalls for November and December, you know, and then start making those phone calls, getting those patients scheduled. Um, it takes two seconds for the schedulers to put in the recall. You know, it's very quick mm -hmm. and simple. And it's something that, you know, if God forbid they leave tomorrow, you know, the person that comes in to learn the job can easily pick that back up, but you have a list of, you know, what's who's due to get what, because I think previously before here, it was just dependent on the providers to, you know, put in the order, you know, which that, you know, definitely contributes to your attrition rate because it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, you're not actively focused on it with everything else that you have to deal with. So. And Dr. Erkman, what about you? What do you guys do? We have a, a really good collaboration with our uh, Epic team. And so we have someone who's helped us develop a spreadsheet that lives behind the interface of the providers. So we can mine data backwards from the background Clarion uh, system. It is a rudimentary homegrown system. It definitely could be improved. But, um, you know, we're also looking at different vendors to address the problem of follow-up. And we definitely have a, a disproportionate number of people failing to follow up for annual screens. We have um, published our work looking at about 20% returning for their annual screen and going all the way down to three and 1% with subsequent screens. So this is a huge problem for us. Our homegrown system is obviously not sufficient. So we are looking for other ways, not only to identify the people who need to be screened and followed up for positives, but for their annual screens. And um, we're looking at, uh, we have a, an American Cancer Center Pfizer grant looking at novel methods. And I think some people had used uh, social media methods and so we're, really looking at uh, web-based, app-based programs to, to do that follow-up to help us. So we, we are struggling with that and we're hoping to have some results with, uh, with these novel methods, at least as pilots. Yeah, this is such an important topic, um, as you guys all know. Um, 
I'll let uh, ask um, Ms. Griffith and Dr. Modi in a second, but and then then we'll get to the question in the chat. So, um, Ms. Griffith, do you know what you guys do in Cincinnati for tracking these patients? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we use um, Nurse Navigator system um, as well as like Epic in conjunction. But I think that's also a big issue um, when it comes to lung cancer screening in general and follow up. But I think one of the things that we saw, especially when we were comparing lung cancer screening to um, follow up with like kidney transplants, is a lot of self-motivation when it comes to getting on a transplant list versus with lung cancer. I think a lot of times people don't screen until they have a positive finding. I mean, so I think the biggest part is making sure that we have multiple disciplinary teams when it comes to your actual appointments. So we found that in, um, we were comparing it to the kidney transplant clinics, they had the nutritionist come in, they had the social work come in all the same day that they saw the surgeon and their entire care team versus with lung cancer, you have to schedule a lot of your different appointments separately. So I think um, part of the things that they are working on is trying to help have more collaboration among the different providers to make sure that when they do come in, um, it's all of the appointments at once or you're automatically scheduling the next appointment rather than waiting months and months to do the next or the next imaging. Yeah. Um, and uh, one, one sec, Gita, I'm going to ask you too, but I just would like to say that uh, an approach to trying to get the buy-in from your, um, your lead, met, uh, leadership, I guess, of your, assist, your hospital leadership would be um, to remind them the importance of these, these tracking programs um, would be applicable also for the other screening populations, right? Like, so our breast, um, high-risk breast program, they don't really have a robust tracking system right now here, right here either. So, um, you know, just trying to find out what they're doing at the, for the other screening programs at your, in your hospital system. And then hopefully the hospital leadership would support investing in, if you want to go with one of these expensive programs or, or if you need to um, modify your EMR so that you can uh, implement one of these programs that you guys are just talking about, because it sounds like it's all over the map right now. Um, Dr. Modi, what are you guys doing? Yeah, so you just took the words out of my mouth. I think getting buy-in from the leadership is incredibly important, it should be part of the ask, anyone who's trying to start or build a lung cancer screening program to get the resources needed to support the team. In fact, here, um, where we have probably um, one of the oldest lung cancer screening programs, our physician lead on pulmonary manages all that data herself. So it is not easy, um, and the, the importance um, needs to be uh, made clear. I think that one of the ways that surgeons can contribute to this issue on uh, disparities is to be present for those conversations, whether it's at your hospital level or at a national level. There are policy decisions being made around all uh, circling around everything we've talked about, right? Regionalization of care, um, thoracic surgical care, comprehensive cancer care, how we network across EMRs, which is one of the questions there in the chats. Um, we as surgeons need to be present in that conversation. And then to address how best to do it in your system, you need to engage the stakeholders. So the end users, whether that's your nurse navigators, or the primary care doctors, or maybe even the patients themselves around whatever systems um, ultimately to be implemented. Great, thank you. All right, now we have this question in the chat uh, from a Lee Gerson. Does anyone have advice on using tools in EMR, which give primary care doctors and providers a pop-up warning if they are seeing a patient that qualifies for screening? 
So what kind of warning do you have or pop-up warning do you have if someone qualifies? I know we have something in place at Boston Medical for inpatient smokers, right, Kay, for Dr. Suzuki? That, that's correct for, yes, that's correct. And we're actually doing something for, we're, do, we're collaborating with the radiologists to um, hand out questionnaires in the radiology waiting area, uh, which will then prompt us to message the PCPs if we identify someone as, um, as eligible. That's, some, that's an ongoing effort, but currently we don't have anything because I think to send a, me to send a message to the PCP every time, I think it's, I don't know how responsive they're going to be to that. You know, they're going to get a bunch of messages. Um, so, yeah. but yes, we have something for in-house patients and we have an ongoing effort for outpatient, people who are coming in for outpatient radiology um, mm -hmm. studies right now. And what we're trying to implement here is, um, well, first of all, just starting with better capturing of the tobacco history because it's not captured well at all here. But the idea would be that if you had the age criteria, met, met the age eligibility and the um, smoking uh, eligibility, I would just, I'm just picking the broadest category, the NCCN ones, even though not every insurance is gonna cover that, of course, but just to, capture the broadest, uh, you know, greater than 50 uh, years old and 50 or older and greater 20 pack years or higher and just start with that. And then that would trigger some pop-up to refer that page. This is what I'm suggesting. And I'd love to know if you guys think this is a good way to go, but to uh, direct that patient actually to our APP in the lung, not, lung screening clinic, who would then just take that on with the shared decision-making call and all that stuff like that, but also making sure the primary care doctor knows their patient's gonna be um, reached out to. So, but what do you guys do, Dr. Erkman? There, there is a function within our electronic medical record we're using Epic that is a health maintenance flag. And so our primary care physicians and all of our physicians have been using it for other screening for vaccinations, um, but it has to be informed, like you said, by accurate smoking data. And we're looking at people saying smoker, yes, no, uh, as being, you know, pretty well uh, documented, but we're really seeing pack years in only 20, 15, 20% of people. And it's a changing number that varies widely. And who is entering that data? Is it a medical assistant? Is it the registration desk? Is it a, a provider who's using a particular calculator? So we um, can do the, the build for it and we have it, but it's really not informed by good data, unfortunately. Yeah, Dr. Hassan, what are you guys doing? So we have, you know, we use Epic too as well, and we have something that may be the same thing, but um, we have a best practice advisory that comes up for patients. So it was already in place for our um, any woman that's over the age of 40, 45 for a mammogram, any patient that's over the age of 50 for a colonoscopy. 
Um, and so for our patients, you know, again, with the smoking criteria, you have to be pretty broad. So it's either they're a current smoker or if they have any smoking history whatsoever and they're 50 and older, then the BPA will pop up as soon as you get into Epic and you get on their face sheet um, and will say, this patient may qualify for lung cancer screening. You know, these are the actual uh, eligibility criteria, you know, please go forward. Um, one of the things that we're in the process of doing is actually getting our pulmonary nodule referral button right in that best practice advisory so that, you know, if, if you would like um, assistance with shared decision making and smoking cessation and working up your patient for screening, you know, please put in a referral to our nodule clinic and we're happy to help. Um, so I think making it easy for the primary care providers, I mean, as soon as they log into the patient's chart, which they're going to do, uh, most likely at some point, hopefully during the appointment, you know, if, unless there's providers that only log into the chart after, but most likely they're in there at some point uh, during the appointment that it's a yellow screen that will pop up, you know, and the one downside is, is that there's a couple of BPAs that may fire, you know, if the patient's 50, they may be ready for a mammogram, colonoscopy, and lung cancer screening. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we, waiting through those, but again, if they click on the lung cancer screening, they can also have an out to say like, oh yeah, let me have them take care of this and uh -huh. they'll be all set. So that's what we do. Yeah, that's great. So you guys are all lucky you have Epic, uh, Dr. <laughs> Modi. <laughs> what are you guys doing? Yeah, we have Epic and um, we have not incorporated <laughs> lung cancer screening into the um, pop-ups, but um, uh, the system is useful for keeping track of uh, people who are due for various um, screenings. Yeah. And so I'm surprised Epic doesn't, hasn't just made this part of the mm. whole thing or, uh, I mean, an option to buy it, but everyone should buy it. So I know it just be part of the baseline, you know, whatever, when you, you get your car and you get whatever the base car is. And then, you, you know, it shouldn't be a bells and whistle, you know, add on thing. It should just be part of it. Yeah, this gets back to addressing the stigma, right? It's like, oh, it's easy to think about, you know, the primary care doc doctors thinking about, um, you know, oh, this lady, my patient's due for her mammogram. Oh, my patient's due for her his colonoscopy. It just has to become routine, right? Um, how are you guys using social media? I know all of you are on social media, some more frequently than others. How are you using social media to, to try and reduce the stigma of lung cancer screening? Uh, Dr. Erkman? Um, that's a great question. We have really focused on patient stories. And so we have interviewed patients who have gone from screening to diagnosis treatment and now three years out and a great story of their narrative and pictures with their families and describing um, their experience and they are such a powerful messenger that they can convey so much more than we can. So we're focusing on getting as many patient stories out there and refreshing this so that we could put a new patient story up or an interview uh, onto a website or push it out through social media and um, not just have the same story up all the time and as an enduring piece, but more, this is a new story and this is an interesting story of a two family members who had similar risks. And I think that that's been helping us. We're also looking at developing a meet the team so that small, short 
uh, interviews or a short visit to the CT scanner to show people what the experience would be. Um, really trying to hone down the information to short snippets so that people can digest it. Nice. Yeah. Um, Ms. Griffith, do you have any comments on this topic? Yeah. So I'm not sure if we specifically use any social media strategies, although I'm sure we probably do. Um, the one thing I wanted to highlight too is making sure that we um, advocate for patients in lung cancer screening in all aspects and not just when it comes to primary care. So even knowing that a lot of patients don't see a primary care doctor and they might come in through the ER and not really have annual visits and making sure that even with them, if we have pop-ups on Epic or if we have different social media strategies, making sure those are also incorporated in the emergency rooms as well as, well as like in the different clinics and different primary care. So I'm sure UC probably does some sort of system, but I'm not really aware of what they do right now. And that's another place where if you get buy-in from your um, institution and your hospital system, I mean, they all have, everyone has a, a, a so me, you know, a, a social media um, person, maybe in marketing, whatever, but there's someone who could just get the story. I love the idea of having stories, getting the stories out. Now, I don't know, obviously you got to have a lot of your, your, your patients um, following your, your hospital on social media. That doesn't always happen. I know at BMC, they had a very, at Boston Medical, we had a, a very robust uh, social media, um, uh, I don't wanna say program, but they do tweet a lot, I'll, I'll just say that. Uh, but I don't know if it's just providers looking at it uh, and uh, doctors throughout the country or who are interested in social disparities or if there's um, a lot of patients looking at it. So I actually don't know how often patients are looking at these things. Dr. Erkman, do you know, like, are the patients really looking at this or are you just relying on the primary care doctors to see the stories and then get the word over to their patients? We're, we're targeting patients in communities um, who are engaged in health. So we don't have a good assessment of how we're reaching the people who are not getting screened, who are not accessing health care. Um, so we definitely need to reach a little bit deeper into that question. But right now, how we're structuring it and how we're sending it out is directed to uh, to patients and to family members, not just people who are high risk, but maybe people who would be related to high risk members. One way to do that if you didn't have a team dedicated already is to work with some of the foundations that are um, advocates in lung cancer care. Um, I'm working with uh, longevity to um, engage patients and um, make sure that they're um, hearing. I love this idea, Dr. Erkman, of the stories. This is, is exceptional. Um, that in that way, then we can make sure that the messaging is coming in across to patients in a way that makes the most sense to them. So I found some um, strength in working with those sorts of groups. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, lung cancer advocacy groups. We kind of forget about those that people do, you know, go to support groups and probably there's some social media components to that. That's excellent. And the ACS, American College, American Cancer Society, right? Um, uh, I'm sure people look up this stuff when, they, when they're diagnosed with cancer and then maybe they, hopefully they follow them too, just to get updates on what's going on with their particular uh, tumor. Um, it looks like Dr. we have a few more minutes and it looks like Dr. Suzuki has a question for all of you guys. <laughs> 
Does anyone have a general screening clinic that encompasses all screened cancers? That's an interesting question. Do you want to elaborate a little bit first, Kay, before? Yeah. Sorry, answer? I put it in the chat because I had to, uh, to walk away for a second. But um, <laughs> I asked because the place I'm going to has, they're launching a screening clinic that encompasses everything, right? So patients just come in and then there'll be a, dis I assume that there's going to be a discussion about what they meet the criteria, what they're eligible for. And for some of the things like mammograms and lung cancer, if they are eligible and you have the shared discussion there, and then they get screened in the back that same day, right? And then so having a, a, a central, I guess, like everything together, I feel like we'll solve some of the issues that we've talked about, like, you know, capturing these things and follow-ups and whatever, right? Because everything is, everything is all there. And uh, maybe the breast guys have, have this all figured out already and you just copy what they're doing or whatever, right? But I, I feel like if, um, I think it's a good idea that they're launching this. And I, I'm, I just have a question if other hospitals have something similar. So it's not a lung cancer clinic. It's a screening clinic that just, that, that covers everything basically. And that's what telehealth is perfect for too, right? Because you don't necessarily have to see the patient and examine them. You just have to like go through the whole. Well, I think, but this clinic, so they, they get screened right there. If they agree, they, they go to the back and they get, they get their CAT scan right oh. there. Oh, wow. So it's a great, it's huh. a great infrastructure, even for like research. If I want to collect specimen, then I get the research person to come there and then you collect the specimen and then, and then they go to the back and screen on the same day. Huh. Right. So I don't think yeah. that would work for colonoscopy, but for mammograms, and, <laughs> you know, lung cancer. Right. Uh -huh. I mean, they if they agree, they just go to the back and get screened right there. Right. Uh, and then everything is there together. So uh -huh. I think we'll lose less people to follow ups because everything is in one database. Right. And so I think having everything together will solve some of the issues that we, we've talked about here. And I just wonder if other hospitals are doing similar things. So that's really radiology oriented. So if you can get, you'd have to have the big buy-in from radiology because uh, it's really it just sounds like it's breast and lung, right? Um, yeah, is anyone else doing what Dr. Suzuki's talking about that they do it at his new hospital? No. Sounds uh, incredible. <laughs> Very good idea. It does, yeah. Especially being able to do everything in one day because I think that's part of the problem with lung cancer screening is that they don't want to do it in the first place necessarily yeah. and having to have the multiple appointments to get the shared decision-making and then, you know, get your CT scan and then figure out the results and all, all that kind of stuff. That's like the one-stop shopping model that I think, you know. Yeah. And it also takes some of the, a lot of the burden off the PCPs because all they have to do is refer them to this clinic, right? Mm. And that, that whole screening thing is off of their, off of their table, you know? So mm. we'll see how that goes. I'll, I'll let you guys know how that goes, but I thought it's a good idea. Well, then it's, you had to circle back around to how are you going to get the vulnerable populations? Getting back to our initial conversation here, that I think that's going to be a hard population still to get to something like a screening clinic, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm sorry, I missed the whole discussion about what people are doing, but um, yeah, it goes back to identifying the key stakeholders in the community because it's not, it's not really the piece. It may not be the PCPs necessarily. So I'm actually having this starting a conversation with the, with the um, community engagement group at the new hospital to see how we can get them involved in the whole process because they probably know who to talk to and mm -hmm. how to get people involved, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and the mobile vans, I mean, mammography and, and uh, lung screening CTs, you can do a van, you know, so that, that's how you can get to the vulnerable people. So I don't know how 
Yeah, go ahead. Does that exist? A mobile? I know mobile mobile mammogram exists, but there's a mobile screening CT. I know there's one someone in Tennessee doing that. Yeah, so it does exist. We actually have one here at Dartmouth Hitchcock um, because and and we. I'd, I'd gotten interested. I remember I was, I think at AATS and I was listening to Dr. Tong give a presentation about their uh, lung cancer screening program in our PET scanner. We were in the process of updating our PET scanner and they were using a mobile PET scanner unit to conduct all the PET scans. And I was like, well, why can't we do that with low dose CT? And then, you know, we talked to our radiologists here and, and uh, the coordinators and they're like, well, we have one. And I was like, really? Um, and so you can rent one from ours. And it, I mean, the, the Carolinas, they had a program and they were very successful with it, you know, in trying to reach those that were uninsured and having a mobile clinic there. And so we've are one of my projects actually is looking at using mobile screening to reach our remote populations and kind of not only to reach them, but to also see what the need is is over time and see if they really need to go through the process of accreditation and have a center there or if their needs can simply be met by just having a van that comes to their town three times a year you know and then that will take care of all the patients that meet eligibility criteria so they do exist yeah oh my my follow-up question to that is how do you choose where to go i i assume you talk to the community stakeholders and whatever to figure out where to go yeah That's exactly it. And so one of the grants we're applying for now is that we're um, looking at the New Hampshire and the Vermont cancer registries and seeing, okay, because we have a higher incidence of lung cancer and a higher rate of tobacco use out here as well. So we're trying to um, use kind of geospatial data to look and see where is the highest incidence of late stage cancers? Like who are we missing that's just not getting into the screening and then they're getting these late stage diagnoses, but that also have patients that meet the age criteria and have heavy uh, rates of tobacco use as well. And then kind of looking and querying the people within those populations to say, what would work best for you in terms of having this mobile unit? Because I think the other thing is you can't just plop it in the middle or plop it in front of their town hall and expect them to come. You, you need to talk to the people that live there, you know, and the community advocates and say, what would work best for you? Is it Tuesday mornings at 10? You know, is it that fourth Saturday of the month that you have the, um, you know, farmer's market during the summer and, you know, or the holiday market during the winter months. Um, And then, you know, piloting it that way. And then also figuring out what's the best advertisement mode. You know, if, if almost all of the town is on an email chain that talks about recent, you know, upcoming events, then let's get on that email chain. Or if they are all on Facebook or get their news from the town hall, then let's advertise there. So again, that's where that community partnership comes in and and using your community resources to really figure out what's the best way to implement this within people that are often hard to reach. Wow. This is, this has been such a, I hate to, I hate to end this conversation and I've enjoyed so much talking with you guys, you know, and hearing your um, experiences. And I hope those who did manage to join our webinar really um, appreciated the, uh, the valuable input, but there are just so many areas that uh, we need to improve upon, but um, it's, I, I'm just so proud of you all for working in this space and uh, you know, um, potentially really uh, making advances in our field, right? From a thoracic surgery standpoint, that's all relevant to us, of course, <laughs> but also collaborating with our colleagues, right? Pulmonary medicine, interventional pulmonary and thoracic surgery really need to work together on this. And that's important. Establishing a nodule slash screening and in my opinion, smoking cessation clinic 
um, using social media. And I love what Dr. Erkman was talking about with the, the idea, the patient stories. Um, we really need to improve our tracking systems, right? It sounds like it's all over the map right now. And the question is, do we need to invest in these um, programs that will sort of streamline it and maybe un unload some of our work? But you know, when you buy one of these things, next thing you know, the, the bill is doubled, right? And then your your hospital system's like, oh, why did we buy this? You know, <laughs> it's like this is not really financially sound. So there's just so many areas to um, address. And uh, I think it's great that we all, I think we all have different niches, um, but we can also all collaborate too. And I hope we can continue this discussion. Um, and, I, and I would love to um, have um, input from the global uh, population on this too, at some point, you know, what are they doing in Europe? What are they doing in China? You know, whatever, so other, other countries. So, and I'm hoping CTSnet will allow us to have a second, um, uh, version of this, of this topic. So I really appreciate just in the interest of time, cause we all probably have to run off and see patients and operate, et cetera. Uh, you know, I got white coats and scrubs on there. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time and I'm, I'm really glad you all were able to join. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.